Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Philip Nanton. He's the author of a new book called Riff, the Sheikh Keen story. In revealing the life and work of the poet and musician from St. Vincent, Nanton plunges readers into questions about home and the possibility of returning, about the nature of art and improvisation, and about definitions of success and the possibilities of creating a legacy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Phil. Philip. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks, Alejandra. Thank you for inviting me to, to talk about uh, my new book. Thank you also for writing this book. It's uh, really such a pleasure to read and to learn about this uh, person, Sheikh Keen, who's multi-talented. But um, before we start talking about him, I want to talk about you a little bit, because you are also multi-talented. <laughs> you are a writer, a poet, a broadcaster, um, all kinds of things. So um, can you just tell us a little bit about what unifies your activities, where the energy for your work comes from, what drives you? Yes. Okay. Um, well, my background is that um, for many years I was an academic in the UK. I taught social policy at Birmingham University. Um, and uh, I, But at the same time as being doing sort of more conventional academic writing and teaching, uh, I've always had an interest in doing my own writing creatively, uh, which I was doing from time to time. Uh, when I left Birmingham University towards uh, the end of the last century, <laughs> sounds a long time ago, um, <laughs> I uh, came to live in Barbados, and it gave me a, a sort of a, a chance to start back again, in a, in a sense, and pick up particularly to focus on my creative writing. And mostly that's what I've been doing since I've been here. So I've done four books now, um, a couple of books of poetry, um, uh, a book about the Caribbean or a way of rethinking the Caribbean that I call Frontiers of the Caribbean, focused on St. Vincent, the island I'm from. And then the most recent book that we're talking about is Riff, the Sheikh Keen story, which came out in 2000 and in 2021. So what is the origin story of this book? The origin story? Well, um, a number of elements came into it. Originally, first of all, I mean, I was commissioned about four years ago to, to, to do it. And it and I had been thinking about working on writing something, writing about Sheikh over the years in any case, because we there was a personal element that we were friends. Uh, the friendship started in 1979 when I was doing my research on St. Vincent and I was there. He had returned um, because he was hoping to, to pick, take, up, take up the role of director of culture for the island. Um, that went disastrously wrong in a couple of years. And, and um, so he, there you had a very well-established jazz musician in the island who was more sort of marooned. Uh, but we also had a common interest in poetry, and he was a well-established poet. I, he, I would show him some of my work, and we would talk about it. So we had that element in common. There were just history was also in common. We both had migrated to the UK. We returned to St. Vincent, uh, the poetry interest, as I said, and um, we'd both worked in radio with the BBC at different times. So, so there were there were those sort of common elements. There was also the, an intellectual question that was very much in, ter- when in terms of thinking of the book, um, is the question of migration. You know, 
actually can you return? Uh, I mean, because you change, the place changes, and, and so you know what options are there. And there's the other element of, in Sheikh's case, um, you know, he went away, he became an established jazz musician. Um, he was sort of fulfilling a dream in a sense, and then, but he felt this call to return to make a contribution. Um, and it's in that return where things sort of went disastrously wrong. So there was that interesting question of then, you know, about return and migration. Um, just his life was very interesting. It was the ups and downs of a, you know, a, of a jazz musician who was also a very good poet was seemed to me to be, you know, there was a lot of interesting things going on in there. In there, and um, I just wanted to also to kind of give some exposure to uh, an artist who was more or less neglected for, for many years. Uh, and so the, all of those sort of factors came together. I'd started writing a few short articles. I'd written uh, a piece on his poetry in Small Acts some years ago. I was wrote a few magazine articles. So things had started to come together. Uh, and I also realized, you know, once I decided I was going to do the, do the work on the, his biography, the interviews I had done for the BBC, I made a BBC program on him, in, which came out in 2001 called Angel Horn. And I had done a number of interviews with people, some of them who have now passed on, sadly. Um, and, and so I had that, you know, all of that raw material. And all of those things kind of were elements that were coming together to, to enable me to, to do the book. So I want to talk a little bit maybe later about the relationship between jazz and poetry and his work, which seems to be really important. But I want just first to get a sense of the chronology, right? So first he he grew up in St. Vincent, but then sure. he ended up in London, right? And what yes. was that London scene? Or maybe even what was it like for him to grow up in St. Vincent? Let's start there. In St. Vincent, yeah. Well, I mean... At that time, remember, uh, he left St. Vincent in 1952 to go to London when he was about 25 years old. He was born in 1927. He died in 1997. Uh, so his life kind of expands most of the, the 20th century. Um, he, St. Vincent's life was, St. Vincent was then a tiny colony um, of Britain, very um, parochial, limited opportunities, um, but very much sort of open and outward looking to the, you know, to the rest of the world. And um, so he, he, I think once he, he, he established himself, he had become a teacher in St. Vincent. But then at a certain point, he, he, he obviously felt that, you know, it was just too restrictive and he had to get out. It was at the time of migration to England that was very popular. And he simply joined that process, thinking that he was going actually to study. He intended to go and do a university degree in literature. Um, but he had always been a, well, a, a musician, you know, he, from the age of 11. He had, he had he was playing in in bands in the, the island for for parties and dance bands and that sort of thing. So he was recognised as as an able musician, um, and he but he had decided uh, what he really wanted to do was 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 study literature. He'd started writing poems which were published both by the BBC and uh, in regional magazines, and uh, so his he felt his calling was in literature. 
so feeling that that you know he had to get on and and, and as it were get out he left St. Vincent. I think he said he left with 11 pounds in his pocket and got to London. There was that time uh, the World Service had this program, Caribbean Voices, which he had contributed to. And so one of the links that he had was with uh, Swansea, the editor. And that provided him with some work uh, when, he, when he got to England. Like so many uh, writers who ended up in, in London and were supported and, and sponsored by Swansea, that's that's fascinating. And so what, what was that London scene like? Was he surrounded by people? Did he start playing music and writing simultaneously all at once? What, what was what was that like? Yeah, well, actually, the writing uh, strangely sort of eased off as, as, as the music came on much stronger. Um, he, he joined, uh, first of all, a, a Caribbean a band, um, uh, and then he got... Uh, he was, but he was also at the same time so playing dance music, uh, what wherever gigs, whatever gigs he could get, uh, and uh, because of his ability, particularly with the trumpet, and then later with the flugelhorn, was so good. He was really not never, hardly ever out of work, and that wasn't such a problem. Uh, and at a certain point, um, he joined the Joe Harriet Quintet. Uh, which was a, um, a, a jazz quintet, uh, and uh, that was the the sort of the focus for his becoming part of that extraordinary um, experimentation in jazz with freeform. Yeah, can you tell us more about freeform? That's a very fascinating um, yeah. way to think about music, and I think that he was really important in in developing it. Absolutely, I mean. That was one. I mean, the, in the in the area of jazz, I mean, freeform was was like where he he very much made his name with the Joe Harriet Quintet. Um, it's uh, the idea is with freeform is to to um, create a musical form as it were as it happens, um, which involve trying to which involve catching the mood of other musicians and so responding in the moment to the jazz rather than which the jazz in the past had been essentially sort of established accord based patterns. I mean in the same way that jazz in the US had taken off a uh, free form had taken off with people like Miles Davis and Coltrane. Um, Dizzy Gillespie, all these established, very well-known jazz musicians, there was this parallel uh, element of freeform taking place in England. And Sheikh spoke about it. Um, And he has a a description of of it, which um, maybe if I can just read it briefly, uh, he talks about it. And this is how he puts it uh, from an interview he, he gave. Um, very often what would happen is that uh, Joe Harriet, the leader of the band, he would set what he called a pattern of music, so an opening, but, but that enabled the other musicians to come in. Um, and so he said, we usually have a rhythmic pulse or pattern going. I might be playing something soulful, and then Joe Harriet can get intense, so you have a conflict, or he might join me and you get a sympathy. The music draws its strength from this sympathy or contrast and the vigor with which each man makes his contribution. The biggest freedom in our music is that the standard is an emotional one. 
when you're playing, you're listening, not to the chords as in conventional jazz, but to Pat or Phil or Cole or Joe. These are the other musicians in the quintet. And you have to know that man and how he's feeling on the particular night and that particular moment in the set to try and feel how he is likely to behave. So the response or movement in the work between one musician and another then can be sympathetic or it can be rebellious. But essentially, the important point is that it relied on trust. And I think that sort of captures, you know, the elements of, um, of underlying this, this development in, in, in jazz. Yeah, I love that description because his emphasis on listening, right, and his emphasis on listening and making an emotional connection. So it's not about sort of what, you know, what scale or what key are you in or, or, or what's your, you know, Absolutely. what's your interest in what rhythm, but it, it's really about sort of creating an organic whole out of everybody listening to one another. Yes, I mean, you have to, obviously to be able to, to do those essential elements, you know, but it's like taking those elements and then moving on in another direction with them to, to do with the, I suppose, the emotion in the music, uh, um, bringing that out even more strongly. Yeah. So that seems like a pretty good gig. How did that end? Or why? Well, like um, like all bands, <laughs> bands break up. I mean, that's one of their, their <laughs> yeah. main characteristics, I think, <laughs> eventually one way or another. I guess. Um, and in his case, what happened was that he was, uh, the number of gigs they were getting started to decline. Because, I mean, he was surviving and he had a family, started a family by then in London. So he was su- surviving and uh, providing for his family through his music. And unfortunately, uh, as the numbers of gigs started to decline, I think different kinds of music, you know, started pop music, started to become more and more popular. Um, And then uh, certainly in the UK. And so he just said that, you know, he couldn't survive. And he'd made them by this time, they'd also made quite a few freeform LPs um, with with the Joe Harriet Quintet. Um, and then he got another opportunity to play big band jazz, as it was called, um, or jazz orchestras. He played, he, so he got uh, a contract to move to Cologne to play with the Kurt Egelhagen, uh band in, in, in Cologne. And he also played with, there's a band by Kenny Clark and Fran, Fran Boland, uh, big band in Paris. So he had moved to be from playing mainly in Britain to become more established, you know, on, on the continent. Um, <clears throat> and But apart from that, he was also in such demand that he was playing um with in britain they had started this this combination of jazz and poetry where established poets would would play would 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 read accompanied by jazz musicians and shake and joe harriet were often the musicians who accompanied the these fairly well established poets um around the country and he also played um religious music so so he would so uh a conductor and <clears throat> called uh, Michael Garrick, who also wrote a lot of um, music, religious music and mixed jazz. And, and the two of them made a very good combination. And he played, a num- uh, you know, in that in that area as well. But I mean, it wasn't just sophisticated music. I mean, he was quite happy to go 
down to the pub on Sunday lunchtime and jam with whoever else was there in the neighborhood where, where he lived. So he wasn't an exclusive sort of person at all. He was very approachable and, and accessible uh, as well uh, with all these other, other elements of his, of his music. And then he ends up back in St. Vincent. Yeah, he decided that he'd had enough. He'd made a lot of LPs. I think some he made, tried to make some popular ones in uh, Latin American style and so on, but they didn't really quite take off. And he got this opportunity to go back to St. Vincent, which I think he was he was thinking about a lot. So he decided, yes, he you know, and he got the chance. He was offered this post as director of culture for St. Vincent. Um, <clears throat> Okay, he's he's going back to this small place, but it's a place that had dramatically changed. You know, it was a colony when he left. It was now more or less independent. It had political <coughs> political parties fighting uh, each other for for power, and he was thrust into this new environment. Excuse me. <coughs> um, and in that environment, he was. Um, I think he just became a, a pawn because in that situation, what happens is so he got the post. Um, uh, of director of culture, which he, he man, ran for two years in St. Vincent. The situation then arose that um, the, the, the party that appointed him was um, thrown out of power because of, of an election. And in the Caribbean, you know, when you have a, a, a new party come in, similarly, as I think in, in the U.S., um, a lot of people who are civil servants, in fact, uh, lose their jobs uh, to others who the party bring in. And that is what happened to him. And as a result, he found himself marooned in St. Vincent. He'd given up his jazz career for two years, so he found it difficult to get back into it. So he was stuck in the island and um, was really, in a sense, so, a sort of like a, a marooned in a way um, and, and just caught in this bind. So is this, um, how do you think about this in terms of your question, your original question, is it possible to go back? Can one return? Well, I think his example is, um, unfortunately, it's not a good idea <laughs> in, 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 in his case. I mean, that's not always the case, but, but certainly by, by any means. But I think, you know, it was, uh, he found himself embroiled in, 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 in this situation that I think, I don't think he was prepared for, you know, mm. the kind of uh, cutthroat politics that, that, that was involved in, in, in the islands. And yeah, he was maybe a, a, that, a victim of it. Sorry? Maybe that speaks to an integrity of, of character, perhaps. <laughs> in a sense, yeah. And uh, then, but then, you know, so he decided that, so he did about seven or eight years in St. Vincent and, and he was, he was, he became desperate to, to move. And um, eventually the opportunity came to go to New York and that's where he, he then moved um, uh, around <laughs> 1981. Uh, and then he spent the last 16 years of his life there. So when did he start writing the the poetry? I know that he was always doing that sort of from the beginning, but it, was there a moment where he was sort of pulling those two together and thinking about, as he, I think he said, right, he, his work was at the crossroads of jazz and poetry, or maybe that was you, I can't no, remember. I, think, I mean, I, he, he did, I, I know I, I think I'm responsible for making that claim. Uh -huh. okay. um, well, I mean, he was he was always writing, um, and his 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 poetry was being published in Saint Vincent. Um, 
he started off um, with two other poets from St. Vincent being recognized as sort of established local Caribbean poets who were interested particularly in, you know, the island situation and writing about that. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't say in the early stages at all that his poetry was oriented towards jazz. I mean, it, it was actually um, sort of more towards, I would say, kind of exploring the island in, di in different ways. Um, for example, you know, nature poetry. And he, but it was also very much his attitude to poetry was that poetry was something to, should, that should give delight, should please people. Um, so there was humor was, was, is, was important in his work. So much so that um, my, the first collection that I did was very much influenced, called Island Voices was influenced by, by, by the, you know, his, his approach. <clears throat> um, then uh, more and more as he, as I think his jazz focus developed, particularly in England, he started um, writing, um, well, I suppose riffing, I guess, you know, to use the jazz phrase, to, to breaking up the lines, um, writing, um, I would say in a sense that, that, he was playing, he was uh, playing became the important word. So it was a matter of playing with the page, the structure of the page, playing with time, play, playing with different fragmented lines. Um, <clears throat> so even with words, inventing words, uh, all of that, that came in, came into his work, which, you know, I, I gave the book the title of Riff. And I think riffing is what he was doing uh, in terms of moving the jazz uh, uh, in, into the poetry. And I can illustrate that um, <clears throat> he, where he talks about, <coughs> talks about the idea of, of the riff. Um, and this is, this is what he says. There are certain kinds of structure, certain habits that all jazz men seem to have. And if you find a poem that uses what would parallel those habits? You might say, for example, that is a jazz poem. For example, the riff, the repeated phrase. That happens in jazz a lot. Then you have the sudden juxtaposition of certain elements. Then there is a feeling that the poem is improvised. But some poems are highly crafted, but don't strike you as highly crafted. If you pick out these elements and find them in other writing or way of dress, or way of talking, you can say that is a jazz man, or that is a jazz hat, a jazz poem, or jazz novel. So at a certain point, and um, certainly, and uh, you know, in <clears throat> as he got more in, into jazz and the concepts involved, I mean, you can see the the spinover between jazz and poetry, and how one very almost organically moved into the other in terms of his work. Yeah, I think of it when when you when you're talking about it and when when you're I'm listening to what he said, um, it seems to me that the fundamentals um, he's managed to sort of combine time, which is the basic you know medium of of music, with space and space on the page, and um, I really like the way that forces you to think about those two together. Do you have a favorite poem? Yes, I do. Um, <clears throat> I have a, I have. Well, there are a couple. One of them, I, I would of his, which act, ironically is a very conventional poem uh -huh. in terms of its structure. But um, <clears throat> I like it because it gives a sort of a 
a jazz man summing up of his of his life as a as a jazz musician, um, and it's called Angel Horn, and uh-huh. I'll, I'll read it. It's only three three stanzas. He wrote oh, this th- wrote this at the end of, <clears throat> at the end of his life, um, and it's dedicated to um, to to his friend Coleridge Good, who played in the the band with him. <clears throat> it goes like this. When I was born, my father gave to me an angel horn with wings of melody. That angel placed her lips upon my fingertips, and I became became her secret name. Her name grew strong, spread like a passion tree. She named the song, I played the melody. In the morning hour, I awoke to dream of her, and all day long, day long, I lived her song. In boat and barge, where songs and seas are friends, our dreams grew large, made love where dreaming ends. And people placed her lips <clears throat> upon our fingertips, and friends became became our secret name. Now light is low, new angels come and go. The passion tree spreads dense as destiny, and this old angel horn strives like the lifting dawn. Love moves to claim, to claim our secret name. So um, yeah, so that was I think it was actually it was the last poem that he wrote, <clears throat> and oh. it's I think it's a very strong evocation of you know jazz in poetry in, in you know, his music in poetry in a way. It is, and even sort of the rhythm, the rhythm and the sounds also kind of really seem to speak to the things that you were that you were pointing out. Yeah, so I, was that was that written when he was in New York? Did he die in New York? Uh, no, he it was it was written. Uh, yes, I think it was. I think it was written in New York. But um, what happened was that uh, <clears throat> he was he he was getting some when he lived in New York. He was getting some gigs. <laughs> excuse me. Um, uh, in other countries, so he was went back to to England for a while to play, um, and but he was getting regular gigs of all places in Norway, in Oslo, because he had a friend there who had um, worked with the BBC with him, and um, so he was going back every year, and because he was on he'd fallen on hard times, they would sort of basically pay him a certain amount in cash, but <clears throat> he would go and get his his uh health checks and his teeth done and all that sort of thing um when he was there um and he was he was so committed to going back uh, he was offered another gig towards the end of the, his life and although he was um he was not ill he, he was not well he decided that he would he would go and uh sadly when he went this was the last trip and he died in oslo um okay. in in uh 79 I see. Sorry, so, in ninety-seven. Uh, <laughs> ninety-seven. <laughs> so, um, but we should talk about his time in New York because that was a quite a difficult time, wasn't it? It was a difficult time for him, absolutely. Um, he, I think, he went to New York hoping that he would be able to uh, revive that jazz, whole jazz career that he had in Europe, but uh, you know, and and perhaps latch on to the. The, the larger exposure that it had in the U.S., but it just didn't work out. I think the movement had uh, away from jazz had gone on so far that it was difficult to <clears throat> for him to, as a and also at his age to get back into 
you know, uh, finding uh, the right groove, the right sort of uh, freeform group to play with. Very much, re- he was an outsider, and so he was getting work. So he would he would do arrangements often for Caribbean bands, for Caribbean calypsonians. There were many of them that, because he knew them all very well, he'd often played on their recordings. Um, and uh, as a result of these, you know, the, his life in New York was was pretty rough. <clears throat> uh, so and he didn't have a green card at first, and so a lot of this was sort of under the table work until he sort of was able to establish that eventually that happened. But um, it took a while. Uh, and he, he went because, he, as he said in one interview he gave, he wanted to leave St. Vincent. He didn't necessarily want it, you know, to, to go to New York, but it was a, a good place for him to be. And he had a family there so as a, as a first start to, to help him kind of find, get it established. So um, those, uh, the, the result was was that um, his life there was was actually quite difficult, I, I would say. Um, and but there were these sort of moments of release, of reprieve when he'd get these other international gigs. So um, the the relationship to Saint Vincent, I think, is fascinating, right? It, I, I wonder how it shaped. It seems like. He, it haunted him, right? Like he, he knew he didn't, couldn't go back, didn't want to be back there, but somehow it, it continues to, and continued to shape his life and his work. Is oh, that? I would say yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it did haunt him in the sense that, you know, um, it was a kind of a, a sort of a slap in the face in a way in going back because, you know, he, he saw himself as bringing back his experience, his world experience and so on and offering it to a place but finding and having that rejection was very hard. So it was like, you know, being sort of rejected by a lover in a, in a way and then having to, to, to come to terms with that. Um, but it was always very much there. I mean, even when he was in New York, you know, he was playing with the, um, the musician Frankie McIntosh, who was an established music, Caribbean musician in New York. He, he would play with him. Uh, you know, he was known by all the other musicians and calypsonians and so that you know he was always kind of very much involved in that whole caribbean music art scene there um if you see all the records in which he's sort of contributed you know you can see that and he used to do arrangements for 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 musicians and calypsonians as well so i mean he kept i would say the caribbean contact very very much but um I think he went with his friend in 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 Oslo. You know, his he used to go there, to Oslo every year, and his friend wanted him to take him back to show him around. And I remember he said to him, "Well, you know, we can go back to the Caribbean, but I don't think we can go to Saint Vincent." Was <laughs> but his friend, mm-hmm. of course, wanted to see where he he lived, and and so yeah. that was so there was this this irony in in the situation there as well. So I want to talk a little bit about just your own process, because this book is, you know, it's not a super fat book, but you've managed to so beautifully cover the entire chronology, but also um, uh, organize it in thematically. And, and these these ideas that you're you're playing with really come out strongly. So what were the challenges? How did you how did you manage to sort of combine the, the chronology with the, the thematic well, um, 
I realized that I, it couldn't be just a straightforward telling of the story as it were, you know, this happened and this happened kind of thing. And so essentially, um, but I also felt that I wanted to give a feeling for what early colonial island life was like, where he was growing up, um, that element of uh, the shock of the change when he went back and as we were being out of it in terms of the sort of the nature of the politics that was he was surrounded by um and so i mean uh, the uh, basically how i structured it essentially um following the conventional path generally but then i had uh, decided that in the middle i would focus more on this on kind of critiquing his poetry and also showing how the crossroads, I call it the crossroads of jazz and poetry and how they interacted and how they combined through his, through his writing. But, but also, uh, as also, I mean, his poetry also expresses parts of his life. So for instance, he was a well-established, he was a teacher, secondary school teacher. Um, and so, so he wrote a number of poems for, for the children in his class. And, one the collection that won the best highest award he got was the Casa de las Americas Prize in 1979 for the collection One a Week with Water, which is uh, very much playing with the idea of riffing, riffing on time, riffing on <clears throat> the idea of a calendar or a diary, and he plays with it in lots of different ways. He invents words, he creates the different the page is created in lots of different ways uh when when you look at it all of those things um so i wanted also to to capture the fact that there was a person who was involved not simply as it was sim- simply is the wrong word not just as a jazz musician but also as you know there, there are a lot of poets in the caribbean who play who have written in the jazz medium the most well-known probably is Kamal Braffitt. But the thing with Sheikh was that, you know, he was a pioneer there in the sense Sheikh was because he um, he could both play the music at a sophisticated level and also write the poetry in that form, in that sophisticated level as well, which sort of makes him to some extent unique in, in terms of that relationship of jazz and, and poetry in the Caribbean. So in expressing that, what I was doing was that, you know, I was both telling the story, his life story, but also saying, well, look, you know, there are all these other things that that, that one has to, to bear in mind that, that have so much part of the of a, a life where a character who was, in the end, basically, he decided he'd go his own way, he'd do his own thing, and and somebody had to, to write about it, and it just happened to be me, really. <laughs> in, in the process of the, doing the research and writing, did you interview a lot of people about him? Well, yes, I did. I was very lucky um, in that I had done a number of the interviews for that BBC um, Radio 3 program, Angel Horn. Uh, so, I, so uh, I'd interviewed, you know, because he he'd been married three times. He um, uh, he had uh, a lot of people in the jazz world who you know who uh, were still around who knew him, and so I was able to do a number of interviews with um, his his partners, uh, with with other musicians. With I was very lucky. Um, his son was very very helpful in terms of giving me his insight into his father's work. Um, I. Uh, the, uh, uh, 
I was also very lucky in that there was an, an interview that was done um, with him, sort of quite late in his in his life, um, and uh, the I was able to to, to get. I'm just looking uh, for um, <clears throat> David Austin was the person who he was very very helpful, an academic uh, in the U.S. He, he had. He had done uh, this late, late interview with Sheikh, uh, Sheikh late in his life, and it was a very um, kind of overarching interview throughout about his life and how he saw things, and that was also very helpful. So I was lucky in that I was managed to, you know, collect material from here and there, which helped me frame the the, the whole project. Yeah, it it makes me really want to go listen to the music and read the poetry, which I I think is maybe. Um, a very felicitous outcome of your book. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope people because I mean I am I was you know I suppose you could say I was on a sort of a mission to try and bring him back to people's attention, and mm-hmm. so a lot of his work is on YouTube. A lot of the, the the music is on YouTube. Certainly, there's him reading a couple of his his reading a couple of his poems there as well. Um, unfortunately, the the books are not so easily available because only a small number of them were were originally published. But um, what I've tried to do also is, is to kind of give a flavor in the appendices of some of some of his work as well. Yeah. So just as a final question, I'm wondering about the the broader implications of the book. And one of the one of the broader implications that I'm sort of interested in is um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more generally about why and how we ought to pay attention to some of these people who are not megastars, not the sort of usual people who we think of when we think of Caribbean music or, or literature, but, but they're richly talented and richly creative people. So what's the, what's the pitch for, for attending to those people a little bit more carefully? Yeah, I I think that um, because on the one hand, it's, it's in an area where he's, it seems to be done so easily and so casually and that's very deceptive because there's a lot of hard work that goes into that appearance of casualness, if you like. And I think that's one issue that, that, that I, I'm trying to bring out. That business of jazz innovation, you know. Um, uh, so that's one element. I think also the, the pioneering element. Pioneers don't always necessarily get, get recognition. And, and again, I think that... Uh, for and, and when you're dealing with something to, that's essentially to do with improvisation, um, again, it's it's, uh, it's it seems uh, sort of uh, fa- fairly easy and slight, but it's also to do with I think a person who uh, is going their own way and decides you know this is how I'm going to do it and and sort of to hell with the rest of the world you know, <laughs> but the, then somebody has to come along and say well actually you know what you have here is something that's a little more than just a casual shrug. There's something of serious depth there that we need to to pay attention to. Yes, thank you. And thank you for doing that. And thank you for speaking with me today. Oh, well, thanks very much for, for the chance to talk about the book.